How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track, from managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. Big show heading into a long weekend. You're going to have so much time on your hands. You're going to be able to listen to this episode twice, and we would expect that you would do that. Uh, Harmon's going to join us a little later on, and we'll get to name that Canuck. I've got a good one for you today, Drancer, but no clues, at least not yet. All right. I'm uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm going to hit it in three, and if I can't guess it in three, I'm guessing Ryan Stanton. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, man, you were collaborative this week. I'm calling you the king of collaborations. Uh, you worked with Harm <laughs> on the Prospects piece. You worked with Custance. I saw you worked with Myrtle and others. You're stuck with me here on the VanCast. Well, I, I mean, stuck with you. That's the best. Um, really, it's it's our partnership, Jeff, that's paved the way for me cooperating with others. You've made me a team player, sir. Um, but no, look, a lot of fun. The the you know, I highly I talked to Bure. Bure had a, made the argument for why McGillney should be in the Hall of Fame, so that was a fun one to put together. Um, I, you know, our listeners, of course, have been expecting us to drop something McGillney like, but once we, once we teamed up with. You know, across our staff, and we had Gary Roberts and Pat LaFontaine and Pavel Bure and Martin Brodeur all sort of vouching for why McGillney's it should be in the hall. Um, you know, I think that piece turned out to to be really cool. Like just some of the some of the all time greats really saying like, "Man, this guy is one of us." What what is going on? Um, you know, I thought that was powerful and a lot of fun to work on. And then with Custance, you know, did some digging, found some found some ideas uh, and some ideas that we didn't use that I'll follow up on you know, later on in the off season or, or whatever the next few months look like, uh, but just ideas for reforming the uh, NHL CBA, the rules of the road, as it were. Um, and look, I mean, some of it seems technical, but it would have massive, massive impacts on things like what teams can sign which players in free agency and the trade market and on and on. So I uh, highly recommend our listeners check that out. I want to ask you, though, about Sven. Yeah. Uh, how was that? I mean, you obviously, he was very, very, uh, I thought, um, candid with you. Uh, where's he at right now? And, and what, what, what did you get a sense like beyond the text? What sense did you get of where his headspace is at? Yeah. I mean, look, I had had it on my list to talk to him whenever the American Hockey League season ended. I was kind of fascinated to see what his takeaways from a year in the minors in a place he didn't ultimately want to be uh, were. And I know you went down to Utica early in the season you know, and from afar, I mean, I kept tabs on him, and he was always a guy I enjoyed interacting with when he was with the Canucks, and so it was on the list, and then earlier in the week when the AHL made it official that, you know, they weren't going to play any more games, I thought, okay, well, uh, now's a good time, so uh, you know, I reached out, and he got right back to me, and we had a great discussion, like, it, it kind of felt like he wanted to talk, you know, when you get a guy, and, and you can just tell that, like, he's got a bunch of things that he wants to talk about, and so... Uh, you know, I had kind of allotted maybe 10 to 15 minutes. We talked for the better part of half an hour over the dinner hour uh, midweek. And yeah, I thought he was really forthcoming. You know, he was careful not to uh, loft any bombs at the Canucks management or coaching staff. But at the same time, I mean, he made it pretty clear that, you know, he felt that they just didn't think that 
he was a hockey player anymore when he suffered the the concussion and the post-concussion symptoms, you know, and then they went out and they acquired JT Miller and they signed Michael Furland. You know, he said, it's his opinion that he didn't think uh, organization, the organization felt that he was going to be able to come back. So, um, you know, I think his year in the minors, he felt that he had to prove to himself that he was healthy, but against that backdrop of sort of the way the Canucks thought about him, you know, it probably went league-wide that all these other teams around the NHL wondered, you know, just how healthy is he. So, uh, you know, he was in a really good headspace. Uh, he did say that, you know, having that year in Utica, if there was an upside, uh, he's got a one-year-old, and it's his first child. And he said, like, you know, in the NHL, when you go on road trips in Vancouver, you're gone for 10 days, two weeks at a time. Uh, and he said, like, you know, that was one of the, the beauties of Utica was, uh, even the road games, bus home, you sleep in your own bed, and you're there in the morning for your family. So he said he, he felt like he got a chance to see his son grow up, and he appreciated that part of it. You know, he said, and again, he was careful. He's like, I don't want to be rude. I don't want this to sound bad, but I I just I think I'm too good for the American Hockey League, and I think I'm still very much a National Hockey Leaguer. So, um, you know, I, I get the sense from him that he thinks his time with the Canucks is done, but that $3.4 million that remains uh, the final year of his contract, that's going to be the stumbling block. And you wonder, I think he hopes that maybe the fact it's an expiring contract uh, might grease the skids a little bit for another team, maybe to take a flyer on him without much of a commitment. But, uh, you know, it would be a lot easier, I think, for teams if it was half of that. So are the Canucks willing to retain salary? Uh, we'll see. Uh, bottom line is, uh, you know, he, he just he says he's in a good place, that he believes he's a National Hockey Leaguer, and he thinks that he will get back to the NHL. Uh, he just may have to wait another year. Like, it may force him to play another year in the minors and then be an unrestricted free agent and, you know, see where it goes at that point. Yeah, and look, the Canucks are definitely willing to retain salary to move Sven, although I don't know if they were as proactive as they could have been in, in trying to accommodate him before the trade deadline. Um, you know, I do think there had been some options uh, at varying times in the year, but look, the just the math of it, you know, you'd way rather do a retained salary transaction than buy him out because his buried cap hit uh, versus the buyout cap hit is pretty close. Like it's only a half million dollar difference. So there's not a ton of cap savings to buying him out. Um, they still might do it if they can't, you know, figure out another alternative here. But, I mean, I think they'll be motivated uh, to sell him. Um, I think they were motivated during the season. Uh, but, you know, obviously, for a variety of reasons, couldn't get it done. So it'll that's gonna it's really going to be a fascinating uh, sort of situation to see play out. I do think that Sven Berchi is a middle six NHL forward. I think he's right. And it'll be interesting to see if he can, you know, get that opportunity and, and – take advantage of it somewhere in the league next season because I do certainly think he's done uh, in terms of having played his last game with the Vancouver Canucks right and again you know the the honesty that came out when I talked to him like you know he said I got that six game stint in November when he got called up and I think he had two points in the six games but you know he knew that there had to be a bottom line there he said he had chances and he didn't convert on them and and he knew that you know, for him to stay and play that he had to score and it didn't happen. And then the Canucks got healthy again and or healthier and he went back to the minors and was never seen again uh, at the NHL level. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, he's in Portland. That's his offseason home and says he's training and going to do everything, you know, to be ready for, in his words, you know, I'm going to be ready for training camp. It's just a question of, you know, where that training camp is. And I do think it would be awkward if, 
he has to come to Canucks camp and go through the motions knowing that he doesn't really stand a chance here. So uh, we'll see how it all plays out for him. But uh, good guy. And uh, just, you know, more than anything, I'm happy that he got a, a full season of professional hockey in with uh, one week off with a, a high ankle sprain, but it had nothing to do with the head injuries that, you know, prevented him from playing 56 games in the season prior to this one. Yeah, you know what? That's an interesting. He's a really interesting guy in terms of like, do you have him be a black ace? Because for me, anyway, you know, there's a lot of reasons why. You know, I was talking, I was thinking about this with the Maple Leafs when Chris Johnston sort of sent out a tweet the other day, and I sort of replied to it saying like, if you think about Toronto, and you think about the fact that all of a sudden you've got Freddie Anderson rested, you've got Tavares rested, you've got you know, that Russian winger whose name I don't want to butcher, who will be healthy now. You've got Jake Muzzin, who will be healthy now, right? You've got Morgan Riley, who will be recovered and healthy now, right? Yep. All of a sudden, this team that looked like they were spinning their wheels, headed, you know, on a collision course with a first-round loss to one of Tampa or Boston, two of the hottest teams in the league, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Boston and Tampa don't have their momentum. Toronto's the younger team overall, right? So, so you wonder if they might have an edge, coming out of this sort of um, lost time. Um, you know, they're healthy and rested now. Like, does I was just sort of thinking, like, who else benefits more if the league comes back in a truncated or, you know, some sort of playoff format than the Leafs do? And, and actually, I do think one of the answers might be Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver was, they'd won two of their last seven, right, before the pause. They'd really struggled with Markstrom out. You know, all of a sudden you're looking at a situation where if hockey comes back, you have Markstrom, you have Levo, you might have Michael Furland. Um, you know, Brock Besser is no longer going to be working his way back. He's going to be have been healthy through this break and be at the same rough speed as everyone else. Um, again, your best players are younger guys, right? And, you know, I do sort of wonder, like, this, someone, when, when play restarts, someone weird, right, is going to go and do something we didn't expect. And if I was to sort of be positioning like what teams I think it benefited the most potentially, um, I think Vancouver, I think Toronto, I think both of those teams are on my list. And so if you actually have a chance to make some noise and in granted, you have more depth now than you have at any point in the season, like you got to have Berchi there just in case, right? You have to, like in my view, you have to. Um, he's too good to not be... Uh, an option for you if you get into one of those situations like the Canucks did in 2011 where you have like you know uh, choosing between Shirakov or Hodgson <laughs> yeah. for game seven yeah. right like you need you need to have um, Berchi in your on your with your team so um, I, I, you know I do think he's probably done with the Canucks but and now that you've mentioned that I do sort of wonder if there's something else there so look we're gonna bring Harmon on but I do want to quickly touch on, you know, we did this top 10 prospects list, and I thought the most interesting note was uh, about Jack Rathbone. Now, Jack Rathbone's a guy who I actually wanted to be number two on this list, but I got talked out of it by every single scout I talked to saying, no, Hoglander is a better prospect, you idiot. Um, so eventually I relented. But the fact remains that I think Rathbone, I don't just think Rathbone, J-Pat, is a guy with top four upside. If he hits it, I think Jack Rathbone's a guy who can play next year. Like, that's my view of him based on what we saw at the view, uh, Beanpot, what I've seen from his numbers, um, and what I've seen from him over the course of the season. Now, the big fly in the ointment, as Rick Dollywall reported last week, was, look, like, 
that we don't even know if there's going to be an AHL season. If you're thinking of turning pro and you don't even know if there's a minor league team for you to play on, like that complicates things. So ask Jim Benning sort of how much his situation was on hold as a result of COVID-19. And Jim's answer was, I've had conversations with his family representative, and that's going to be up to Jack and his family. He just finished his second year. I think he'll probably go back and play one more year at Harvard. Now, Jim sort of looks at it as, we'll try again next year. You know, it's it's his decision. Um, We're still confident. We still have time. And he's right. But I still think that's an interesting thing to note, that, you know, Rathbone's situation remains opaque. Um, People don't really have a good sense of whether he's leaning one way or another. Everyone who sort of says they do is speculating. And so, and but we do know now that the Canucks GM anyway expects that the club's at least another year away from signing Rathbone and getting him in the system. Uh, what do you have any reaction to that? What do you think that'll? Uh, what do you think that means for the Canucks in this market? Well, no, that was a fascinating point that was made by Rick, and then as you said, you followed up with Jim because you think about it. Like, I mean. COVID has screwed with so many things in our lives, but one of them is the hockey calendar, right? Like, we don't know if and when this season is going to resume, and we sure as hell don't know when next season is going to start. And so the point is, you know, if you're a college guy and you decide to turn pro, you go to a Canuck training camp, maybe in September, but maybe it's October, November, you know, if you don't make the big league team, then what? Like, we don't know what the future of the American Hockey League is right now. There are a lot of people that are thinking, you know, if the AHL can't play next year, like, uh, you know, what's that going to do? Or if there's a lengthy delay, like, what will that do to some of the independently owned franchises? Like, there are so many balls in the air, but just the timing of it all for guys that have to make these decisions, like Jack Rathbone, that in some ways, maybe the simple way to ensure that you know where you're going to play and that you have a place to play is to stay in college for one more year. So absolutely, it complicates matters and uh, certainly something that uh, the Canucks and Canuck fans are going to be watching pretty closely here as we go. And I want to get into the prospect list that you and Harm have worked on. We'll do that in a second here. And we'll finish up strong with another edition of Name That Canuck. I've gone to work. I have scoured the all-time roster, <laughs> and I, I think I found a good one. So uh, all that's still ahead here on the VanCast. All right, let's bring Harmon Dial of The Athletic into the mix as we talk about Canuck prospects. And Drancer, uh, you guys have collaborated on this list. It was a two-day event, the Unveil uh, Prospects, Top Prospects 6 through 10 uh, yesterday. And uh, then this morning, out come the top five for the Vancouver Canucks. And uh, let's just talk a little bit about, guys, first of all, about how you go about compiling a list like this. What was the criteria that made Pod Colson and Hoaglander uh, Top Prospects 1 and 2? Uh, yeah, so I, I think when we uh, went through the pool of prospects, uh, Drancer and I kind of, uh, we sort of weighted the, obviously the production level. Uh, we we, talk, we ended up talking to Jim Benning and NHL scouts, uh, obviously uh, went through and reviewed some tape. And so I think what happened is we just tried to gather as much information as we could uh, from as many information sources um, and then from that point, just kind of piecing everything together, uh, obviously taking into account uh, a prospect's age as well. Like, I think that's uh, something that may have uh, docked Brogan Rafferty, who turns 25 years old right. uh, later this month. So I think it was more uh, prospect list trying to judge um, who who has the best odds of being a potential impact player at the NHL level. Uh, as opposed to who's most NHL ready. Um, and so I think that would 
that would kind of explain the process that we went through just as far as uh, ranking some of the guys. That makes sense. And, and I have to admit, like when I opened list one, the six through 10 Drancer, and I saw Rafferty at eight and I thought like, there are a lot of people that would be screaming, like, what are you talking about? You know, so many people have been building this case that Brogan Rafferty's ready to step into the National Hockey League right here, right now. I don't think there's any sort of dissonance between saying that Brogan Rafferty is probably ready to play and be helpful as an NHL player next season and still belongs at eight on the list because while, you know, he's more likely, I think, anyway, than the 2D right ahead of him, Jet Wu and Ole Olevi, to impact the Canucks next season, overall, based on, you know, the fact that Rafferty is five years Wu's senior and four uh, Yolevi's senior, um, and, you know, just the overall projection of his skill set versus the other two, based on conversations with industry sources, that, you know, Rafferty's a guy who could play and who could play in a third-pair role. And that's sort of where the sort of potential for him kind of ends in the eyes of a lot of the people we spoke with in the industry. Whereas with Wu, you know, there's some things that need to break right. But in terms of his physical game and speed, there's uh, people who think that he could be, you know, sort of one of those transitional shutdown guys, maybe even in a top four role. Um, Yolevi, same thing. You know, I, I'm a lot lower. When we started out this process, we had Yolevi as an honorable mention, but everyone we talked to kept sort of, well, not everyone, there's definitely split opinion, but the people who rode for Yolevi rode really hard saying that, look, the top end offensive skill might not be there, but he's going to move enough. And there's a lot of sort of things to still like about his game. He should be higher. So you know, overall, when we sized it up, I think we looked at Rafferty more as a depth guy, um, a potential depth guy who's maybe closer to the NHL, uh, but doesn't have the ceiling of the two defenders or the three defenders we ranked ahead of him, including Jack Rathbone. Harm, you want to you want to speak to your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I, I think um, I think a lot of what you uh, said makes sense. I think specifically as it pertains to to someone like Wu. Um, the the question with him maybe is what is the sort of as you mentioned upside because he doesn't in, in watching him play uh, he's very good all around um, and and you like to see the the two way qualities that he presents he's not just um, the the type of throwback defenseman who can't move his feet or, or who who can't make a breakout pass I was actually really impressed by uh, the way he sees the ice and um, just how consistently he's able to go tape to tape. Uh, on outlet passes, but he doesn't have any standout traits, and and so that may be something that limits his limits his uh, ceiling at the next level. You'd like to see some level, uh, so, some trait that really really stands out uh, at the junior level that might translate to uh, the NHL one. Um, so I think in in examining his game. Um, he, he may be a little bit more of an uncertainty, and I think he's going to take some time at the American League level to adjust to the pro speed of the game. Uh, but if and when he does make the NHL, he's such a unique type of player, just with his physical presence, uh, the way he's able to rub players out along the boards. Uh, he's very aggressive in the neutral zone. And I think when you take those qualities into play, uh, it's a very enticing package. And I think just because of that, uh, we had him uh, ahead of uh, Ulevi and, and Rafferty. And then, uh, as as you kind of mentioned, with Ulevi, there was perhaps an argument to have him uh, even lower on the list. Um, certainly, I'm I'm in in Tom's camp, or I'm not as high on him. 
Uh, but you do see, again, some of the same qualities that made him such a high selection in the first place. Um, you, you can see the way he sees the ice, um, how he's able to make decisions. It, it really comes down to mobility. Is he going to be, uh, is he going to move well enough for the NHL level? Because we've seen a lot of the highlight reels that uh, aren't so pretty where you love he's trying to defend the rush and he gets and he gets caught flat-footed and beat on the outside. That's going to become uh, only a bigger issue at uh, at the NHL level. So that's going to be something to, to, to watch for with him. Um, I think he's still a ways away with his de- defensive game before he's going to be ready for the big leagues. Hey, Harm, it's always important to keep in mind when you guys put lists or anybody puts lists like this together that, you know, in recent years, so many of the Canucks' top prospects have bypassed Utica and are playing for the Vancouver Canucks, right? Like Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson are still such young players, and obviously uh, they no longer count as prospects, but they're the cornerstones of this franchise. So, you know, if this is the top 10 uh, in terms of the stable the Canucks have to work with, uh, overall, how do we assess, you know, Pud Colson was their first rounder last year, 10th overall, and then you've got guys like Lind and Hoaglander. But I thought it was interesting to hear Jim Benning almost undersell you know, again, these are second round picks and, and Benning has gone on record talking about top nine guys or, you know, maybe top six. So overall, if we're looking at the totality of this group of 10, um, you know, is the Canucks prospect stable in decent shape? I think firstly, as it pertains to some of the second round guys, um, when when you're talking about a Colin or a Hoagland, when you get that deep into the draft outside of the first round, uh, a top nine player usually is a win. I think if you sort of stack it up and um, and and we're to look at all the second round picks over the last ten years, finding uh, a top six talent is uh, uh, a bona fide one is a lot more difficult than than say being able to get a middle six one. So um, I wouldn't be concerned about that as it as it pertains to to those two guys, the second round picks. But uh, in totality, I, as you agree, I think. Prospects can be something of a of a scratch lottery ticket. I mean, you 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 get guys like Adam Gaudet that seemingly out of nowhere take uh, take steps in their development that you may not foresee, and and that's why you want to have as much depth and and as many pieces with upside as you can uh, in your prospect pool. And I think when I look at Vancouver's top ten, there there is quite a bit of a, a drop off after the after the Hoaglander Lind Lind. 3-4 uh, because after that you've got Di Pietro who I like and, and think can be an NHL goalie but uh, after that there you wonder how many legitimate impact players are going to come out of this group and um, that's a little bit concerning given the fact that the Canucks don't have uh, a first round pick either this year or the next to complete the JT Miller trade um, as well as they won't have their second round pick this year so um, I think a lot of this prospect pool's um, success is going to depend on the top three or four guys. Because if those guys hit, um, if you have, say, uh, Pod Colson, Rathbone, and one of Hoaglander or Lind hit, then uh, then I think the Canucks are in a pretty decent position. 
But if you have difficulties in the development of those top end guys, then I think you're in a little bit of a uh, in in a little bit of a jam because when you get into guys in in the six to ten range, I'm not sure that I see a, a lot of top six forwards or or a lot of top four defensemen. Those could be more depth pieces at the NHL level more than anything. So. Um, it, it, it's not a terribly deep prospect pool. And of course, as you mentioned, some of it does have to do with the fact that uh, a lot of guys have graduated out of the system over the last two years. Um, but as I see it, it's going to be really dependent on, on, on the top group to, to, to carry forward the momentum and, and continue to have ELC contributors. I just wanted to follow up with that and ask about your series you've been working on with the defense. Because when you look at Rathbone, Yolevi, Wu, and... Rafferty, who were the D that we had on this sort of list, uh, you can throw, uh, you know, the Finnish gentleman too. Uh, is that Utenen? Uh, there's no way I could pronounce that name correctly, so I'm, I shouldn't have even tried. But you know, throw those guys in. Do you see a guy there with top pair or top, or top four upside? And how important is it going to be for this team to beyond free agency, beyond trades, find a way? to identify, draft, develop a guy who's going to play in the top four meaningful minutes on that back end. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the difficulty of trying to assemble uh, a top four around the National Hockey League, you see most of those guys are drafted and developed. Uh, Teams don't Teams, teams love to hang on to their top four guys. They're, they're very hot commodities, and you're going to have to pay a really significant premium to acquire them on the trade or free agent market. So uh, it, it's, it, it really can't be uh, overstated just how important it is for Vancouver to be able to draft and develop a top four defenseman out of the current pool. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm really fond of, of, uh, of Jack Rathbone. I think with his skating ability, uh, his offensive instincts, he's suited for the modern game. Uh, he is a little bit undersized, but uh, I think just j- just the way that uh, he's progressed the, the last couple of years at Harvard, I think just because we haven't seen him as much um, as far as his, as far as the tape and, and because his, his development hasn't been uh, as um, as well documented that he's gone a little bit under the radar. And, and to me, I, th- I think he represents Vancouver's best shot of, of getting a top four defenseman. I think he does have that le- legitimate potential. Um, after that, it's a little iffy. Um, again, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Ulevi. Um, I, I, I think Wu... I think he has an outside shot to be perhaps uh, a second pairing shutdown guy, but ultimately, I, I think if if and when he does make the NHL, that he's probably more likely to to do so in a in a bottom pair capacity, who can uh, perhaps kill penalties, um, and and Rafferty too. I, I think he's he's going to be better suited for uh, a depth role. So. Um, I think you definitely need to you need to figure out a way, and it's going to be difficult because the Canucks have uh, less draft ammo to draft and develop. Because right now in the prospect pool, especially on the right side, because at least you've got Quinn Hughes set um, on your on your left side as as a top pair presence. The right side is is pretty bleak moving forward, and and having Jet Wu um, as as much as I am enthralled by the package that he brings to the table it's just not enough and and that's and that's going to be a a huge challenge for the team to try and overcome as they try and take that next step from uh not only being a a team that's up and coming and and on the rise but um but but taking but turning that corner and becoming a legitimately good and then a legitimately great team in the nhl 
When we look at revamping this Canucks back end, and I think we all agree that that's priority number one for this group, you know, you, you've written extensively, uh, you did Project PD last year, and you hit on two of the five forwards that you identified as possible trade targets, and they bring in JT Miller at the draft, and then ahead uh, of the deadline, Tyler Toffoli. So you hit about 400 there, which is uh, nicely done. So you turn your attention now to the back end, and you've laid out six guys that, you know, you think are potential trade targets for the Canucks. Is there a guy on that list, Harm, that... You know, realistically, you know, with the deep dive that you've done and you lay out sort of the pros and cons and the attributes and everything else. But is there one guy that kind of sticks with you that you really would like to see the Canucks take a legitimate run at? Yeah, I think in an ideal circumstance, um, I really love Eric Chernak uh, out of Tampa Bay. Um, he 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 brings everything that I think would complement Quinn Hughes really well uh, in that he is a really strong defensive defenseman. Um, he, he's got that old school edge to him and, and, and that bite, which, which obviously people would like and, and would, be, would be a nice dimension to add to that back end. But more importantly, um, <clears throat> he's also got the puck skills, the mobility to suit the contemporary NHL, right? So he's not your uh, Eric at Branson or Cody Cece type of shutdown defenseman. He's uh, he's uh, he's built and molded to fit uh, what the current NHL landscape requires, and and that's what I really like about his game. Um, is that um, last year he had a really stellar rookie campaign uh, playing in Tampa Bay's top four, um, and, and this year when you when you examine just how his season went, it, it wasn't. It was a bit of a down year relative to his lofty standards, but he was still uh, one of those guys who you could reliably uh, deploy against uh, some of the opposition's better players and who was a really aggressive defender, strong in the neutral zone. Uh, he'll win his one-on-one battles. And and if, again, when you do look at some of the numbers under the hood, you can see a player who makes a, a marked difference um, in, in terms of his two-way profile. So I really like Chernak, and the only question is how much is he going to cost? Because he's, I, I can't imagine that he's going to be cheap. Um, Tampa Bay's in a position, of course, where um, they only have just just over $5 million to re-sign Mikhail Sergachev, uh, Selkie, well, presumed Selkie candidate Anthony Sorelli, um, and Chernak. And even once they sign those RFAs, they're only going to have 11 forwards and, and five defensemen under contract. So really, um, Tampa Bay is really up against it. And, and this is one of those situ- situations where uh, Drancer kind of gave the uh, example when uh, I was initially putting this list together. You're almost trying to replicate the JT Miller trade. You're going to have to pay a steep but fair price for a high-quality player that the Lightning may not be able to afford to bring back for financial reasons. Now, if Chernak isn't someone who is realistically in Vancouver's price range because they, of course, don't have a ton of tradable assets, uh, then I really like Mackenzie Wegar. Um, he's one of those players where y- you see a lot of um, undervalued sort of third-pair guys that um, you wonder whether they can take the next step. They, they, they show dominant, um, they, they, they prove to be dominant third-pair defensemen, and, and you just wonder, can these guys take the next step? And some of them, like Nate Schmidt in, in Vegas and, and Michael Kempany in Washington, blossom and don't skip a beat when playing those higher-stakes minutes. Um, and then there are some like Colin Miller who just can't take the next step. And I think with Wegar, 
this past season, he showed that he was more likely to be in the Nate Schmidt, Michael Campany tier because he stepped up into uh, a top four role for the Panthers, uh, played alongside Aaron Ek- Aaron Ekblad um, uh, against the other team's best players um, over 20 minutes a night, and 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 his results were just as impressive. He continued to move the puck really well. Um, his un- underlying numbers were caughty as usual uh, with Florida uh, pushing a, a largely positive differential of shot attempts and, and scoring chances and actual goal differential when Wegar was on the ice. Um, and I really like just his efficient style where he's strong in transition, not only his ability to uh, sort of transport the puck up the ice, but also he's very, very uh, adept at, uh, at taking away space through the middle um, and forcing forwards to to have to dump the puck in as opposed to allowing them to carry in, which of course is a big weakness for this Canucks roster. So I think if Chernak is uh, if Chernak is out of Vancouver's price range, then then Wegar is someone who might be more realistically attainable. Florida, of course, the the reason that they might want to uh, that they might be in a position to give up on him is because Wegar is an arbitration eligible RFA who hit career highs across the board in in terms of his. Uh, goal and, and point outputs and of course his ice time so he's gonna command a, a sizable raise and 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 the Panthers already have Aaron Eckblad and Anton Strollman on the right side who combined to make 13 million they have Keith Yandel and Mike Matheson so they have a they have a very very expensive blue line and they may not be able to afford to bring Wegar back well it was a terrific read if people haven't had a chance to see it yet uh, it's posted at the athletic and certainly uh, lots of options there for the Vancouver Canucks to pursue and as we said uh, look you had uh, a great batting average last summer when you looked at the forwards so uh, hopefully there's some people in the Canucks front office that uh, are reading through this article and uh, taking notes and we'll see how things shake down harm uh, terrific stuff as always really appreciate it uh, thanks for joining us here on the Vancast and uh, we miss you want to see you around the rink soon so hopefully uh, uh, you know everybody can make things happen here uh, safety first obviously but uh, uh, be good to get back to uh, normal and back to covering hockey on the ice sometime soon here Thanks, guys. Miss you, miss you guys, too. Our thanks to Harm Dial. And again, you can uh, find his terrific work, as always, at The Athletic. And uh, Drancer, he finished up there with a Mackenzie Weger mention, a Florida guy, some connections. Mackenzie Weger, does he make sense for the Vancouver Canucks? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and Mackenzie Weger did everything that Harmon talked about. His career year, he did it all playing on his weak side. He did it all playing on the left side of Aaron Eckblad when he's a right-handed defender who is better suited uh, to playing on his strong side. So I actually think there might be some ceiling to scratch beyond that. The other thing that, like, here's us here, the secret note that I want Canucks fans to know about Mackenzie Weger to build Mackenzie Weger hype is Mackenzie Weger goes at Brad Marchand. Like, whenever the Panthers and the Bruins play, Mackenzie Weger finds a way to get into some kind of physical altercation with Brad Marchand. He's a really competitive kid. Like, he's a fast skater, but he's got a physical upside to him too um sort of has an old school view of the game that that i think fans would really enjoy if he were playing in a canadian market um he's also a big cfl fan so he would immediately be moj and farhan's favorite player (laughs) um a lot a lot of reasons this fits from my perspective and not just because it would uh it would give me a familiar face uh in the canucks locker room well any guy that goes at marshan that uh right there shoots to the top of most canuck fans list so uh, (laughs) we'll see how it plays out and as we said like harm had such success last year with his list of forwards that uh, the canucks should target that uh, i would pay attention 
uh, if I were you, if you're uh, reading this list, yeah. because uh, as Harman, always... Harmon's lists are the new PA plan. Pretty much. Pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, John Cooper, the head coach of the Tampa Lightning, is on two-man advantage with Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebron. You can find that podcast at the Athletic site. And, of course, uh, one of the features here, we get people playing along at home. Uh, we've done this for the better part of uh, six weeks now or so. I think uh, this is our 10th guy. Uh, I, I did a victory lap around the neighborhood after uh, guessing Jeff Cowan on the first clue the other day. So uh, I think i got a good one for you today. You ready? All right. Yep. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, this Canuck played exactly 200 games in the organization but only 20 of them with the big league team and 180 with the Manitoba Moose. With the Manitoba Moose mm-hmm. and played 20 games. Um, um, I'm thinking of... I'm thinking of, like, that era. And I'm wondering about... I don't think Guillaume Desbiens played enough games with the Canucks. So maybe it's a guy like... I'm, I've, I've got like two or three names that, I'm, that I want to say, but I'm just not... I'm going to guess Jason Jaffrey. Uh, it is not Jason Jaffrey. So we'll see if, guess, it, see if it turns out to be one of the other names that's rattling around in the brain. Still active in the league today. Wow. This player has played for all three of the teams in the metropolitan New York area. Oh, 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 oh. Um, Michael Grabner. Oh, well done. There you go. Nice. Yes. Nice. I thought maybe I could throw right, you off. Two points. I thought maybe I could throw you off the scent by saying he was still active in the league today with the New York area. I thought maybe you'd think he was still playing there, but good for you. <laughs> yeah, no. Michael Grabner. Um, Grabner... Played 20 games for the Canucks. He played, fi- like I think it's 50 minutes with the Sedin Twins. He was a right-handed shooter who could skate like crazy. And, you know, obviously has these sort of Cy Young-type uh, stat lines through his career, right? The season with the Rangers, he had 27 goals and 13 assists. Yeah. Um, the season with the Islanders, the big season with the Islanders, you know, 20 and 12, 34 and 18. Um, in the 50 minutes he played with the Twins, they controlled 72% of shot attempts. And I do sort of think, like, boy, what did did should he have had a longer look? Like, I think he was pretty immature when he was in Vancouver uh, at the time. I think he became, you know, a, a bit of a a bit more committed in terms of his time in the gym and and his lifestyle. And he's a family man now, and that's sort of been key to him having a lengthy NHL career. But um, you know. The way that his skill set might have meshed with the Sedin Twins um, is sort of a what if for me that lingers on, especially when you consider, you know, the that Ballard's contributions were negligible and that in the 10-11 season for a pretty bad New York Islanders team, Grabner was a 34 goal scorer. Well, the third clue was usually the throwaway one, and it was the Canucks grabbed this speedster with their first round pick <laughs> the last time the nice. draft was held in Vancouver prior to last June, so... <laughs> Michael Grabner, man, he's a fascinating cat. He, I also loved those Austrian national teams. Like everyone else, every other national team came to the Olympics in 2014 and was determined to shut it down. And the Austrians had Vanek and Grabner, and you know Tommy Gunn, obviously, like just taking one lap in warmups. And um, 
and they just went for it. They were like, "Nah, we're going to try and outscore teams," and they got <laughs> completely blown out. But it was so fun to watch. They went down, went down swinging. I love it. Yeah, I appreciate the courage of it. Anyway, uh, all right. Well, good for you. You got it in the second clue, so uh, you amassed two more points for your collection. Uh, well, and we learned that I could do an entire van cast off esoteric Michael Grabner takes. <laughs> As you said, he's an interesting dude. I mean, tatted to the hilt. You see these workout videos that he's posting these days. and uh, You're right. Yeah. I think that there was sort of... He grew up a ton. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I was going to say a commitment that probably wasn't there early on after lighting it up in Spokane in the Western League. But uh, you're right. It just seems like he kind of got it at some point and still playing uh, with the Arizona Coyotes. All right. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of the VanCast. Uh, again, our thanks to Harm for joining us. Uh, good on you for getting Grabner on the second bounce. And uh, we'll do another Name That Connect the next time we reconvene after the long weekend for Drancer. It's J-Pat. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Uh, stay safe. And uh, thanks so much for listening to the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. Mm-hmm.